When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. As I near the number of 150 episodes, here's a first for tonight. Um, I actually recorded or tried to record what I'm about to say about two or three weeks ago, and I realized almost immediately afterwards that uh, there's a good chance that it would come off as whiny or judgmental or just... uh, not how I wanted it to sound. And so, uh, for the first time here, other than re-recording some poems here and there that I didn't think I had read very well the first time around, I'm going to redo something and uh, do a second take. And I think it's also important to try and get back to the series that I had in mind uh, of doing every Saturday or Sunday or so called The Poet Speaks, which... uh, from the last episode before my vacation and a lot of other things got in the way about a month ago, is basically where I take three quotations from uh, uh, writers or artists or uh, uh, creative people of any kind, and uh, over the course of a half hour or so, just talk about those quotations and what they mean. And usually... uh, just showing my own bias here. Usually the quotations have a way of bursting the bubbles of various expectations that we've come to have about creative people or about uh, making things, about uh, actually creating itself. And I think I mentioned in the first episode of uh, The Poet Speaks that I was going to try to avoid making uh, a thematic episode uh, about this, Um, but I think uh, given the topic I want to talk about, three connected quotations from three very different people will actually uh, serve us pretty well. And the the topic under discussion here is education, specifically in, in my mind, the education of poets and of creative writers, but I'm fairly certain that this could be uh, extended out uh, to how the humanities or how literature, uh, and maybe even these days how history is taught more generally. It's probably best to uh, approach the three quotations uh, chronologically in time, um, lest we think that what I'm about to say is uh, a modern phenomenon. It's, It's worth beginning 
actually in the late 19th century. And this passage comes from uh, Jacques Barzin's book, From Dawn to Decadence, 1500 to the Present, 500 Years of Western Intellectual Life. And I think just from what I read here, you'll get a sense of uh, where it is that I'm going. And anyone who's listened this far probably won't be too surprised at where it is that I'm going. Um, let's see. Just begin in the middle, right here. Uh, then begins also the sad story of the humanities, the endemic plight of the liberal arts. In earlier days, they had lived on excellent terms with science, what there was of it, usually a professor of physics and astronomy, and one of chemistry or natural history. Those sciences had nothing illiberal about them. All types of knowledge were born equal. But in the 1880s and 1890s, the increasing squadron of specialized sciences invaded the academy banners, flying and claiming a monopoly of certified knowledge. It would be wrong to suppose that the scientists went out of their way to maim or kill the humanists. The latter's wounds were self-inflicted, because in the hope of rivaling science, of becoming sciences themselves, the humanities gave up their birthright. By teaching college students the methods of minute scholarship, they denatured the contents and obscured the virtues of liberal studies. Quote-unquote research was the deceptive word that made humanists devote their efforts exclusively to digging out facts about their subject without ever getting back into the subject. Nicholas Murray Butler, another university builder of the period, used to relate a telling example. When he was an undergraduate, taking a course in the Greek dramatists, the professor opened his first lecture on Euripides by saying, quote, This is the most interesting play of our author. It contains nearly every irregularity in Greek grammar. End quote. It is the fallacy of misplaced significance that continues to this day to deprive the humanities in college of their attractiveness and of their practical value. The curriculum may have a large offering of liberal arts courses, but they are worthless as education if they are not taught humanistically. But again, the science faculty is not responsible for the folly of their colleagues across campus. The humanist's fear and envy of science in the 1890s was groundless. Thomas Henry Huxley had truthfully pointed out that science appealed to the young mind and developed it for all intellectual purposes because it was observation and organized common sense, nothing there to frighten or repel the liberal arts major. Science has since become something other than common sense, but that is another story. So that's from Jacques Barzin's book. So we see right away, let me see if, uh, 746, they give the dates for this guy. 
um, doesn't really. So we can see uh, right away that uh, the issue that that one might have with teaching, in this case, Euripides, and teaching Euripides not for what he can say about humanity, what he can do with poetry, what kind of story he can tell, what kind of story he can dramatize so powerfully. Um, one of the most intense reading experiences I ever had was reading uh, Euripides' play The Bacche uh, in a cemetery in Macon, Georgia uh, back in 2003, I believe it was, in the summer. A hot Georgia summer in a one of those uh, terraced uh, southern cemeteries and with a and with a uh, with train tracks nearby and with the sound of the trains going by as I'm trying to read this this immense play out loud uh, what nonsense it is um, un unless you are planning to just do research what nonsense it is to teach something like Euripides or in our own day probably something like Shakespeare uh, T.S. Eliot, um, Emily Dickinson, uh, whoever you can think of, to teach them simply to study their grammar uh, and not for what they're actually saying. It's almost as if, um, this is almost as if, it, what, what is the, the phrase that he uses here? Uh, the fallacy of misplaced significance. I remember coming across uh, a scholar uh, about 10 or 15 years ago who was using T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland as the sort of prop for his own uh, pet interest, which was, I believe, secretaries and the lives of secretaries in, early, uh, in the early 20th century in England or, in, or just in London, maybe. And while that is a obviously a worthwhile study, I would like to to know more about these women's lives, obviously, but to the, the way that it was phrased, it was almost as if uh, T.S. Eliot had written The Wasteland simply so we could learn uh, something about sociology, excuse me, something about sociology um, and not something basically about humanity. Uh, there's another uh, 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 anecdote I heard from Joseph Campbell, who said uh, that he once heard about uh, uh, a PhD thesis being written simply about the uh, the use of punctuation in Shelley's sonnets, and it's very hard to imagine uh, Percy Shelley and the kind of volatile life that he had, living simply so somebody could study his use of punctuation. Um, but to move on to the next example, uh, and this comes from 1942, and this is from uh, Jean Gehenno's Diary of the Dark Years, 1940 to 1944, and this is from the translation by David Ball that came out uh, a few years ago from uh, Oxford University Press. Now, Jean Gehenna lived through uh, the, the dark years of the title, is, uh, is uh, the Nazi occupation of Paris. 
and he lived through that time in Paris and kept his diary hidden uh, while the occupation was on. Um, he lost his job, and unlike many writers in Paris at the time, um, he refused the opportunity to be published in book form, and he refused uh, any opportunity to be published uh, even in magazines, since both of those were under the uh, the eye and the censor of the Nazis. Um, whether or not uh, he was the wiser or uh, the writers who continued writing and publishing in Paris were the wiser is another uh, question entirely. But his diaries are an immense uh, document, uh, and I'm sure that part of their power, part of their precision, um, part of their anger, uh, part of their uh, inward-lookingness just comes from how isolated uh, Gehenna made sure that he was and no doubt felt. And this is what he has to say in uh, a diary entry from January 27th, 1942. He says, I have ample proof, unfortunately, that the teaching of literature in the Sorbonne and the universities has become pathetic. The abuse of history, of the footnotes of history, has destroyed all critical sense and taste. I know a professor who spent a whole year giving a commentary on Lamartine's Le Lac. He traced the history of a little pink or blue notebook in which Lamartine had scrawled a few stanzas of his poem. He related what hands it had passed through. He counted the pages and analyzed them, and that required several lectures. When the last one came around, neither he nor his students had actually read the poem yet. And to these so-called historians, it seemed that all the artists of the past suffered, wrote, and lived only to provide matter for a few bibliographical index cards. They have fused research with education. We must have researchers, but researchers are not professors. Let the researchers do research and the professors teach. They are two distinct functions. But in the best cases, what we do is train bookworms. From the age of 20 onwards, we accustom them to remain inside one drawer of index cards. We train them to compile notes and work their way through it. We cultivate petty vanity in them. And for them, knowledge will always consist in adding a card to their life, like a gram to a kilo. Knowledge will distract them from their life, which it should rather enrich and govern. Their curiosity about small things will dispense them from being curious about great ones. Without critical sense, without taste, without ardor, mediocre researchers and worse teachers, they can only maintain our society of quantity in its vain illusion of being a civilization. And that is not from an essay published five years ago in the New York Times or the Washington Post. That is from a diary entry in from 1942. Um, and I'm still just uh, 
floored by that every time I read it. Uh, you are studying poetry, and while it's no doubt worth studying how a poem is written, um, there's nothing I love more than, than how uh, The Wasteland or Allen Ginsberg's Howl became so famous that it was possible to publish uh, the drafts of each poem so you can trace just how the poem was, how each of those poems was uh, written and uh, rewritten and edited down to its final form. And uh, there's nothing more fascinating than finding, for instance, just the, the, the handwritten first drafts of a poem or a novel or uh, sketches of a great painting or studies uh, that led to the creation of an immense painting. But if you're doing that for the sake of statistics, in Gehenna's phrase of filling out note cards of using a magnifying glass and not uh, your wide open eyes to look at the larger picture, the larger picture being, as far as I'm concerned, um, how people are supposed to live, how creative people are supposed to live, for one thing. As I've said time and again here, how Homer is supposed to uh, leave off writing one night and take out the garbage or put the kids to bed that kind of thing. Um, I don't mean uh, petty or uh, uh, petty moralizing here, how to live your life morally. I mean how to live your life humanely, and I think that that is what art can do. It can't, it can't give you the rules for how to live, but it can give you an insight into other people that you would otherwise never meet or an insight into people that you would certainly meet, and, uh, but by reading about them or hearing about them uh, being read aloud, uh, you're given a greater insight into yourself and into other people. Um, I don't know of another purpose for art, at least for me, if I had my manifesto. I think I said this uh, a few episodes ago. The manifesto would be that uh, art is Art's primary concern is for the alleviation of loneliness, on the one hand, the loneliness of the one experiencing the art, and the loneliness of the one who has created it. And hand in hand with that, it is for the creation of empathy, of discovering other lives that you would not otherwise experience, or, as I just said, of discovering lives that you thought were extremely familiar to you and seeing a new shape and a new form to them. Um, one of the reasons I'm uh, re-recording this is because I don't think I made it clear the first time around that uh, that um, I think the first time around there was no sense that I had any sympathy for people who are teachers. Uh, my entire family are teachers. Uh, my parents taught grade school, and my, my brother uh, teaches high school. And for a long time, it was assumed that I would teach either high school or college. But almost immediately, uh, I have always pushed back against that impulse. Um, and it struck me that the, the poets that I've been in contact with over the past few years, all of them, uh, one way or another, 
are now, are becoming, or were in the past teachers. I have immense sympathy for what they have to do, and I don't know what it would be like to have to walk into a classroom every day uh, filled with students who are either extremely interested or not interested at all in what you have to say, uh, a beginner's course or an advanced course, whatever it may be, uh, in Dante or James Joyce or mythology or religion or uh, any kind of poetry you can think of. Um, I don't know what it would be like every day to go in and uh, to go in there not with a uh, not with a Marxist bent or not with a feminist bent or not with a historicist bent, but instead with my idea of an empathist's bent, if that's even a word, uh, how to study poetry uh, and drama and movies and literature by how much empathy you can dig out of it. Um, or the, the loneliness bent, um, I, that would not be very easy to do, uh, especially in this era of uh, where uh, the administrators are also keeping a microscopic eye on everything that is being said and done and are further draining the blood out of, out of how great art is taught and approached to younger generations. I have immense sympathy with what uh, a teacher has to do, but at the same time, you do have to wonder, uh, is this it? Is this really the best that we can do? Um, and it's hard to say. It's very hard to say, uh, which might give me the room to read the very last one. The very last quotation comes from Flannery O'Connor. And uh, you know that Flannery O'Connor uh, would not take anyone's bullshit any day of the week. This is actually the first of these quotations that I ever came across. It would have been uh, the fall or the winter uh, just after I graduated from high school and just as I was entering college myself. A teacher of mine in high school said, if you really want to become a writer, you need to know what the whole process is like. And by that, by that he meant uh, submitting, uh, getting to know uh, journals and editors and uh, the whole process of rewriting and, and writing and rewriting again. And to his mind, and I think he's right, uh, one of the best places to look is Flannery O'Connor's book of letters, uh, A Habit of Being. And there are two passages in here where she is talking about how her stories are being dealt with in college courses. And it's incredible to think I was 18 years old. I just turned 18. And, uh, and when I read these passages, I knew right away, I saw exactly what she was saying. I knew right away that studying these things in a classroom setting, let alone becoming a teacher of them in a classroom setting myself, was simply not what I would want to do. Um, and I knew it then, uh, immediately. And this is what Flannery O'Connor says uh, in one of her letters. She says, uh, the week before last, I went to Wesleyan and I read my story, A Good Man is Hard to Find. After it, I went to one of the classes where I was asked questions. There were a couple of young teachers there 
and one of them, an earnest type, started asking questions. Miss O'Connor, he said, why was the misfit's hat black? I said that most countrymen in Georgia wore black hats. He looked pretty disappointed, and then he said, Miss O'Connor, the misfit represents Christ, does he not? And I should say the misfit is a character in the story. Um, he does not represent Christ, I said. He looked crushed. Well, Miss O'Connor, he said, what is the significance of the misfit's hat? I said that it was to cover his head, and after that he left me alone. Anyway, that is what's happening to the teaching of literature. Now, as far as I remember, I haven't read that story in a long time. Uh, a Good Man is Hard to Find is about a family uh, in the beginning of the story who hears on the news or sees on the TV that a group of, uh, I think, escaped criminals uh, is on the loose and basically be on the lookout for them. And the misfit is one of these one of these people, and by the end of the story, they they do encounter these people, and the the misfit uh, kills, and the other people kill this family. Now it's it's incredible to me uh, that you have Flannery O'Connor in your classroom, and you are asking not about what do you think this story says about murder, what do you think this story says about religion or faith, or about your own faith, she was a Catholic, what does this story say about family life, and um, I believe the, the, the misfit uh, kills an old woman as she is reaching out to uh, attempt to be generous and humane with him, what, 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 do, what do you think that means? Uh, what does that say about humanity? What insight does that give you about uh, tragedy or supposed waste of life, about violence? You have all of these things you can possibly ask. Flannery O'Connor, who is sitting in your classroom, and you ask why the hat is black. You ask what the significance of the hat is. Um, you basically become symbol hunters rather than human being hunters. And then, um, and the second letter is, uh, is about um, a letter she received from uh, a college professor and his students to explain the same story, A Good Man is Hard to Find. Um, and uh, she says that both the students and the professor were sure that much of the story must be interpreted as a dream or a reverie. And this is part of the letter that Flannery O'Connor sent back uh, to the students and their teacher. <coughs> Excuse me. She says, the interpretation of your 90 students and three teachers is fantastic and about as far from my intentions as it could get to be. If there were a legitimate interpretation, if that were a legitimate interpretation, the story would be little more than a trick, and its interest would be simply for abnormal psychology. I am not interested in abnormal psychology. The meaning of a story should go on expanding for the reader the more he thinks about it, but meaning cannot be captured in an interpretation. 
If teachers are in the habit of approaching a story as if it were a research problem for which any answer is believable so long as it is not obvious, then I think students will never learn to enjoy fiction. Too much interpretation is certainly worse than too little, and where feeling for a story is absent, theory will not supply it. My tone is not meant to be obnoxious. I am in a state of shock. Um, and she says in response to their comments about uh, one of her one of her novels, The Violent Buried Away, um, your criticism sounds to me as if you have read too many critical books and are too smart in an artificial, destructive, and very limited way. I think you folks sometimes strain the soup too thin. Um, again, the, the, the O'Connor uses the same word that Jean Gano used, and I believe that uh, Jacques Barzin used, which is research. Um, are we uh, are we doing our paintings? Are we doing our poems? Are we making our movies? Are we? Uh, I, I think of the clips of. Francis Ford Coppola, shirtless uh, and out of his mind in the uh, in the Philippines, I believe, where he filmed Apocalypse Now, uh, ranting at the camera about what he's doing and what what a, what a story he's telling. Um, I think of the idea of him realizing that he's going through all of this uh, mental torture uh, simply so that uh, critics and scholars. Can have a research project uh, in the future. Mm. And I just don't think that that is so. As I said, I have no idea how I would approach uh, teaching this stuff on a daily basis if that were my job, um, but I don't think, even given that, that it is such a huge uh, ask to make that something else be made of all of this. Um, there's one other thing that I did want to say here, and I want to get this quotation right. Let's see. There we are. Um, this is from the same scholar who uh, was using T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland uh, uh, as a sort of jumping off point to study secretaries. Um, and he says in one of his books, uh, almost a throwaway statement as if it's obvious to everyone, uh, he says that for Eliot and his contemporaries, it was axiomatic that a poem communicated emotion, while for us today, a poem is an artifact of language. And I would just like to say, um, I'm reading Hamlet again right now. Um, over the last few months, I've been reading from the life of Walt Whitman, and I've been reading his poetry. Uh, I've been reading uh, here, posting readings from Seamus Heaney's poetry. Um, what, what about any of that shows language to just be a vehicle for research, to just be an artifact of language? It is communicating something. Um, I think, well, there are two things that I can maybe close with, uh, because there really is no solution to any of this. The first 
and this is where I think I can come off as a snob, and I'll try to phrase this as best I can, but but I think this insight might work. Um, on the one hand, it's very rare for someone to create a truly lasting work of art that goes on like a snowball, just accumulating meaning, the kind of thing that uh, millions of people over hundreds of years uh, can end up referring to. It becomes a part of their life. Um, you remember where you were when you read it, experienced it, saw it, heard it, uh, all the rest. It's extremely difficult to make something uh, that lasts in that way, that has that kind of power. It's extremely, it's extremely difficult to intend to make something like that. Um, so that what you might have uh, are a few dozen really uh, truly immortal kind of works or authors that can do that for you. Now, everyone's list of what uh, that immortality is would be different. I'm not trying to say that there is a fixed canon of 12 dead white guys and go and read them. Uh, everyone's list would be different um, if, if you're approaching it humanistically, empathetically. Uh, if you're looking for the insights into humanity, uh, the, the list can be endless. Um, but what isn't rare, uh, what is common, and especially with Twitter now and everything else, what is even more and more common is simple criticism. Uh, it's very easy to criticize. Anyone, almost anybody, can get on Twitter now and criticize. Almost anyone can get into an English class and write a paper about why they don't like a poem by W.B. Yeats or whoever it is. Um, all of the takedown that we see uh, going on uh, all over the place right now, culturally, while some of it is necessary, the rest of it, I do think, sort of ties into this. It's very easy for... It's very easy to simply be a critic. And I think that's basically what we're doing, is raising generations of researchers and critics. And, and frankly, it's lonely trying to actually create something that has meaning. I don't think it's very lonely being a critic. Um, you can have uh, 500 people on Twitter like something snarky that you said about a TV show, but if you write one good poem, uh, it's often hard to find someone who will want to read that poem, unless it is based uh, in the critical or hip or uh, political mode of the time. So that I don't blame people for falling into the need to belong, to uh, to taking the easy way out and avoiding some sort of emotional attachment or reaction to literature and art by simply becoming researchers or critics or collectors of data and all the rest of it, or of uh, writing things that uh, no one would ever want to read anyway. Um, I think Steven Soderbergh said it a few years ago, and I never forgot it, that uh, it's actually very easy to create something that only five people 
would want to watch and that only five people can understand, uh, it's much harder to create something that hundreds of thousands, or just hundreds, uh, of people would want to see and enjoy and see again. And this, of course, is vastly different than from superhero movies as well. Um, the last thing is I've sort of been dancing around the topic of the MFA stuff. Um, and I guess I can, it's hard to criticize an entire industry, uh, or it's too easy to criticize an entire industry. Uh, but if we keep in mind that, uh, that at least my, uh, my outlook on why we should bother reading great books, why we should bother watching great movies, why we should bother listening to great music, why we should bother uh, going to see uh, great paintings or architecture or any of that. Whatever great things, whatever those great things happen to be for you, um, is not to, is not for some intellectual trick. It's not a game. It's not a, it's not a piece of paper. It's not, uh, it's not your degree. It's not uh, the nose you can turn up at people that you don't think are as smart as you are. It's not for the sake of uh, gathering buzzwords and jargon. Um, if you assume that that is the case, then what I gather about the MFA industry is that it keeps, for instance, poets, it keeps them fed it gives them jobs, uh, it gives them a sense of security, and especially with the, the year that we've lived through, uh, it's not anything to turn your nose up at, uh, a job and security and uh, uh, a focus. But I would just ask um, what it means for creative people to be turned by their professions or by the bents of the people who are around them, who are influencing their lives and their educations, what it means for uh, someone who might as well be our next uh, Shakespeare or just our next Whitman, to instead be just turned into a critic, just turned into someone who is making sure all of the footnotes uh, are correct. And I would say uh, it might offer them all of those things, but if it doesn't allow them to write better poetry, uh, what is the point of that security uh, in the end? If their own souls are not being fed or spread out the way that they were meant to, um, I don't know where the end of that can possibly be. But that is what I had to say tonight. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode 
can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.